This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Yo, Pierre, you want to come out here? <laughs> in New York, I'm Millie Rock. Hiding in my socks. Running from a up. And I shoot at up. Midlife Surfer Podcast listener, how the heck are you? My name is Jeff. I'm a small wave lover. I'm a Craigslist scroller. I'm a six zero to nine ten ripper, ripper here in the uh, bucolic Santa Cruz, California. Anyway, I'm not really a ripper, and uh, I bet you're not either. That's probably why you like listening to this episode. This not this episode, but but this podcast. This podcast is um, it's for rippers, of course, but we're not kidding anybody here. I like to talk about the struggles of surf, the little things. For example, I got on that whale shark, that Tenno album, Matt Parker-shaped whale shark. It's a really funky-looking board. I had a great fun surf session with the great Eric at Midlife Pizza at Instagram. And uh, he brought out the whale shark, and uh, I brought out my, uh, my trusty nose rider. Super low tide, negative tide. We found the spot that works, though, and there's some energy in the water. And in fact, I had a really good time, about two and a half hours out there in the water. Um, but we traded boards, right? And it's a big Tenno whale shark, it's called. It's a glider shape, kind of, with like a fishy, I don't know, like a fishy tail. It's got some beautiful glass on keels. I think it's a twin. Funky board, alternative board. Really wanted to try it. And he didn't wax it himself. I think, uh, gosh, not Griffin Colapinto, but Corey, Corey Colapinto. I think it was made for that guy. And uh, somehow uh, Eric procured it. You could hear that a couple episodes back. But nevertheless, it was waxed straight down the center of the board with like four inches on each side of the deck unwaxed. Which for me, I don't put my hand straight under my chest when I take off. I think I almost, I think I grabbed the rails or my hands damn near go close to the rails when I take off. And um, as evident by, uh, I traded boards with Eric. I said, let me try this one. So a little two foot waves coming through. I paddle, it picks me up. I start to pop up, put my hands down, hands slip right off the rail. Snack my chin on the deck. And then I'm like, oh fuck, I, I still, I still gather my laurels. I try again, hands slipped right off again. Two straight slips trying to pop up on this big, this big dumb board. It's a beautiful board, but I, I was calling it dumb at that point just because Corey Colapinto only um, waxes it uh, within uh, 10 inches <clears throat> side to side. And um, anyway, that's the kind of stuff that I, I think, at least I enjoy talking about. I assume you like listening to too. So we are, uh, we're the everyday, the every, the every man's surf podcast. Hope you had a good, uh, well, here in the States, I hope you had a good 4th of July. I had a good one. I went camping with my kids and my wife. Checked out a spot in Big Sur. It was, uh, we're not, I'm not a huge camper. In fact, I'm not even crazy about camping. I don't like, uh, <laughs> I don't like getting dirty. I don't like, <laughs> how lame does that sound, right? Uh, but you know what? My boys sure do. And uh, God, the joy in their face and their, they just, 
can't get enough. They insist on being barefoot and filthy the whole time, which is fine with me. We had a good fire going, only did one night. Now, that, that was all that was available at this spot. It was almost glamping because the tent was already set up for us. Uh, you know, it was like one of those like cabin tents, it had bunk beds, and then it had another bed adjacent to the bunks. Stuck the two boys in the top bunk. Mom slept on the, the bottom bunk. I slept on the, uh, the other guy. And uh, we had a good time. Walked up and down a river, took the boogie boards there. There was a little, little river with little tributaries that turned into little mini waterfalls. And the boys would surf down that. And had a nice, memorable 4th of July weekend uh, here in the States where we celebrate our country's independence. Anyhow, what else is going on? Eric, oh, by the way, speaking of midlife pizza, Eric has a story. I got to get him on the pod coming up. So this is a teaser, but he texted me. We have to talk immediately about my surf. He went out like mid-morning, 4th of July, which is just amateur hour. You, 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 you won't catch me. Yeah, dude, you will not catch me at 1030 on a holiday in Santa Cruz in the water. It's just frustration, sensation city. But Eric's got that big goddamn glider. And he scores, and he's not afraid of the crowds. I'm not afraid of him. I'm more annoyed with him. But anyway, he, uh, and this is why. Uh, it's case in point. I don't know any details yet. I told him, save it for the pod. And he is. So I'm going to get him on soon. But he texted me that he got in a physical altercation in the water. Eric got in a physical altercation. So we need to talk about that in the forthcoming episode. All right, two items uh, on this pod, and I'm really excited about this gentleman, Brian Bielman. Chances are you've seen his work. If you've looked at a cover of Surfer Magazine, uh, likely it's, he took the damn picture. I'm just going to read from his uh, website a quick bio. He's internationally renowned. Uh, Brian Bielman, you know, I learned about him in the White Rhino documentary. We interviewed Brent Storm a couple months ago. Brian is the, was the best interview of them all. He's not the surfer, he's the photographer, but he has a great perspective. And as you'll see, he's just a wordsmith. He likes to talk uh, just like I do. And he's a really sweet guy, really descriptive, and volunteers a lot of information. And uh, I think you'll find this a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool conversation. But anyway, he shot everybody from Andy Irons, uh, Bruce Irons, Kelly Slater. And I'm going to quote from his website. With his images gracing more than 150 magazine covers, the pages of 30 books, and appearing in iconic magazines like Rolling Stone, Men's Journal, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated. He's recognized worldwide to be a photographer at the very top of his field. He captures the entire surf lifestyle and continues to push the boundaries of photography both above and below the water. You know those cool underwater shots? I don't know if he innovated them, but, um, but he sure uh, takes some pretty, really unique beautiful images underwater as well. Brian's passion for surfing and his love of photography have kept him on the cutting edge for 35 years. So anyway, we're going to talk to this um, this legend, Brian Bielman, coming up. Before then, we're going to touch base with our friend Rhett McNulty at surfcare.co. Surfcare is that insurance policy for your surfboard. They'll fix your dings for you. It's drawing time. I had... Uh, a handful of listeners, and I appreciate you participating. If you follow Surf Care and then you leave a review for my podcast, I promise we do a drawing. Uh, winner number one gets a free year of Surf Care. Winner number two, the runner-up that is, gets 50% off a year of Surf Care if they so choose. And so we're going to do that as well. And then lastly, oh, two, two other items. One, 
donate for me, will you? You know, my kids haven't eaten, and uh, they haven't eaten since you last donated, so uh, they're starving. And uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily in it for the money. It's a passion project, this here podcast, but it doesn't hurt, especially for Adam Montiel, my producer. He edits these uh, just because he's a good friend, and he's very talented at it, and I like kicking him some bucks uh, with every donation you give, so... You could donate at midlifesurfer.com, midlifesurfer.com. I got to say, first quarter of this year, I was impressed with the amount of donations. I I think I've gotten like five bucks since then. So um, here we are in quarter number uh, three. Are we in quarter three already? Let's see. April, May, June. Yeah. I didn't get a a damn donation in quarter number two. So someone needs to step up for Q3. Show some love. Uh, Send me $1. I'll give 50 cents of it to Adam. I'll use the other 50 cents to buy a Nicorette and coffee. Thank you. All right. One more item. Listener feedback. I got some listener feedback for you. I'm going to pull up my Instagram as I record on this very phone. Travis Landrum. I really appreciate you listening. He wrote me a couple cool notes uh, on IG. You could direct message me too at uh, Midlife Surfer Podcast. And uh, I I just love hearing from listeners. Hey, Jeff, I've been catching back up on the pod after six months away. I do that too, Travis. I'll take like a year off of a podcast and I'll return to it. Bill Simmons, that's a sports podcast I hadn't listened to in about a year. And I just uh, re-engaged with it. And uh, it's nice to come back to a podcast and a podcaster uh, that you appreciate listening to. Uh, It's good to hear from normal, everyday surfers like myself versus folks I have no hope of really identifying with. It keeps the stoke alive. I spent last week working on East Cliff and staying in an Airbnb. That's in Santa Cruz, by the way. I surfed the hook at least daily for three hours. I was treated to a ton of everything the hook has to offer. Great swell, some quintessential Santa Cruz localism. You all are super blessed to have the waves the waves quality you do in East Cliff. Be well and keep doing what you're doing. If you're up here in the fall, let's do OB. So I assume he's talking about Ocean Beats in San Francisco, which uh, if I do do that, it better be a smaller day because, I don't know, Ocean Beach makes me nervous. And then he wrote, oh, I, I replied like, thank you, you know, you're awesome and I appreciate you and blah, blah, blah. And then he wrote, oh, and by the way, getting a Junode Easy Rider. I met him at the hook on Thursday. Huge thanks for the recommendation. I'll hit you up when I'm down next. Be well. So anyway, he's getting a new board from Michelle Junot, who was also featured on this pod and who is a great dude. Anyway, Travis, thank you for uh, reaching out. You're a good man, dude. And uh, you can reach out to me, as I said, at Midlife Surfer uh, Podcast on Instagram. Or if you don't have an IG account, you can email me at midlifesurfer at gmail. And of course, send those donations, will you? Hey, let's get Rhett on the pod. Let's do a drawing and let's give something back to you, the listener. Stop city, bitch. Rhett McNulty of Surf Care joins us for the grand prize, the grand finale, the grand drawing. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, hooking our listeners up. I appreciate it. How are things going with surf care? Great. We have a lot going on. We're moving into summer. So people are buying a lot of surfboards and uh, adding protection plans. We're excited to uh, give away uh, some of those plans to to your listeners. I appreciate that. Um, Tell me real quick, just summarize again, your product and uh, and how it can serve a consumer. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, We kind of Compare it to a protection plan that you add to your phone. You know, it's made of glass to a certain extent, and so are your surfboards. Uh, if you purchase a surfboard at a surf shop, you can then go to surfcare.co and add a protection plan uh, within 30 days of the purchase of that new board. And you protect it uh, from dings and breaks. If you ding your board, we'll fix it for free at your local repair shop. 
If you break your board, we'll replace it uh, for a 25% deductible. Beautiful. Good. All right. Well, let's do it. Let's get a winner. And the contest we had over the last five or six weeks with listeners was to follow you on Instagram and to leave a review for me. So I have my, uh, my trusty Giants hat. You're not a Giants fan, are you? Just went to a Dodgers-Padre game the other day. <laughs> Padres got the best of them, I bet. They sure did. I watched, I watched those. Was that down in San Diego? Yeah, drove down. You're, you're a Padres fan? I'm, I've kind of split time between – I'm not a good fan. I've split time <laughs> between L.A. and, and, and San Diego. But yeah. uh, my nephew is a, Padre, or a Dodgers fan, so I was, I was back in the Dodgers. I heard that. Uh, Dodger Stadium and Petco – Gorgeous facilities. I've always had a soft spot in my, my heart for the San Diego market and San Diego people in general. So I'm stoked that they're doing well, but, um, but I'm a Giants fan. Petco is a great stadium. Super fun. Good. Crowd. I know. Yeah. Good, good crowd. You guys deserve it too. After the chargers leaving you and stuff. All right. So you're down in Laguna though. So you're kind of right in the middle. So that makes sense about your fandom. All right. So I'm doing a drawing and this, First winner is going to receive a year care of a surf care premium plan. And then a runner up, if they so choose to pursue it, gets 50% off uh, a year uh, membership of surf care. And the winner is Kellen, AKA the flying Hutchman on Instagram. And Kellen is a uh, loyal listener of the pod. So I'm stoked that he won that. So congratulations, Kellen. I'll uh, contact you on IG, put you in touch with Rhett. And uh, you guys can square some things away. So on your next new board purchase, you have to activate that within 30 days, correct? That's right. Great. Okay. Second, Paint by TRG. Of course, I don't have the first and last names of these guys, but Paint by TRG, another one, uh, another Instagram follower and listener of the pod. So those are two uh, good listeners that that went to. So I think, um, I don't know, I feel good about the giveaway there. And I appreciate you hooking our listeners up, Brett. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And congrats, guys. Right on. Um, before you go, I just got to ask you about surfing real quick. How's that longfish working out? Last time I talked to you, you said you got a, a Machado, like, what was it, like a 7.0 longfish or something like that? Yeah, the 7.0 uh, Seaside and Beyond. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, I haven't been surfing that much lately. I got out yeah. one day in Huntington, uh, which was super fun, about to head off to Hawaii and thinking about with the summer waves uh, on the South Shore, it could be a, a good board to take with me. So I'll Absolutely. Let you, I'll let you know here in the next uh, – next month or so what's your favorite board you've ever had um i like the hayden's all the hayden yeah. boards yeah, yeah just they get good reviews they and the really numbers don't lie they, they sell that's like the highest selling board in the planet i think too right that uh, hypto crypto yeah i surfed a board called merlot i don't think they make it anymore but i just mm. i love the way that felt underneath my feet it worked really well for me until i kind of put it to bed you're one of the few guys also that I know that surf the wave pool in the, in God's country, the great San Joaquin Valley, Lemoore, California, where I was born and raised by the way, over in Fresno. But, um, I was watching, of course, the, uh, surf ranch pro. Did you watch that? I missed it. Yeah. Um, I like it. I, I don't know. I kind of like how it's a, a, the same, um, medium, the same palette to perform on it. Like, a you know, it's almost like a gymnastics competition or something like that. Um, so I enjoyed it, but, I did think of you because everyone wants to surf that damn wave. And I was just curious, uh, maybe you said this the last time we talked, but what, what is that wave like? Like, what does it remind you of? What have you surfed before that, that uh, wave, the wave pool uh, reminded you of, or were there any similarities? I mean, I think it, it, it's a totally unique experience in terms of the way the wave works. Um, but I compared it more to a reef 
reef break because as it passes over the shallow shallower part of the concrete there's just a lot of water moving underneath your feet yeah so you're, you're, you know and it's it's in a small area you know that's displacing water so you really feel the the movement of the water the sucking power coming off the bottom of the wave and pushing back so it's a different experience but more like a reef break is it challenging i think it's it's challenge for me it's challenging because i don't consider myself an amazing surfer but I think it's it's pretty easy for most people to get up and get into the wave. Okay. Most people, regardless of your skill set, you can get up and get into the wave. It's a matter of, you know, are you going to get barreled and are you going to be in the right spot when that happens and you're going right. to stay in that wave? It's a long wave, so you're going to be in the right spot continually throughout that experience. That's the did, hard part. Did all your waves, did you ride them to fruition or did you eat no it on any of them? No way. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah, way a lot of them just a couple and uh i didn't have that many waves but um uh just a couple i got through the whole thing and even the the, the last barrel section was really difficult for me just to get in the, the headspace that you're racing it the whole time instead of stalling god you're racing it the whole time last, so you're pumping trying to keep up with it yeah the last barrel well, that's a trick. The last one's a lot faster than the first one. So was it set up similarly to like, well, you didn't watch the contest, but it barrels, then you have a ramp to do some turns and then you have a really fast barrel near the end. Yeah. That's cool. One. Well, right on. <laughs> and uh, did you get properly tubed? I did. I, I, I'd say I only got really one, one good one. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's one more than I, I would probably ever get there. So thank you, Rhett. I appreciate you checking in with us. Thanks for hooking the listeners up. And um, I wish you the best, surfcare.co. And also, what's your Instagram handle? At surfcare. All right. Thanks for joining the pod, Rhett. Have a great day. Thanks for having us. You too. Congrats once more to the Flying Hutchman and Paint by TRG. Those are a couple Instagram handles, by the way, for participating in that giveaway. Thanks again to Rhett and Surfcare. Check them out at surfcare.co. Okay, let's get on with our feature presentation. Brian Bielman, he's a legend in surf, a legend in surf photography. He called me from his home on the North Shore of Oahu. Occasionally, his signal dropped out, but I was grateful for every minute he spent with me because he had a lot of cool things to say. So let's go ahead. I'll take you now to our friend, Brian Bielman. Stop city, bitch. <laughs> How's the weather on the North Shore right now? It is so absolutely beautiful. It's, it? been, it's been the best June ever of all time. The surf has been really good. Summertime's flat here. And we've had nonstop, like, three to five foot waves, sometimes even a little bit bigger. Oh, wow. Now, that, that's more my size. But I'm over here in Santa Cruz, California, and it's beautiful here. But three to five foot Hawaiian is a little bit different than three to five foot uh, here on the, uh, in California. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was a two weeks ago or maybe three weeks ago, we had a swell. And I paddled out to this place called Jocko's. And it was full on six foot plus Hawaii size. Whoa. in june and, it was crazy yeah and I, I know it's probably cliche to even touch on but there are a lot of newbies that listen to my pod too but isn't that true that the wave metrics for hawaii is different than the wave metrics say uh here in santa cruz right are you measuring from the back of the wave yeah and it's the stupidest thing ever i mean i've dealt with it i've been in hawaii for you know since 75 and it's so ridiculous you go out and you ride a 30 foot wave and they're like it's eight eight to 10 feet today. You know what I mean? It's like, 
it's counterintuitive, like right? It's kind of cool how you, you kind of understate your, the size of your wave as opposed to overstating, you know, how big that wave was. Yeah, that's why it's funny whenever, you know, people come from the mainland and they start raving about how it's 10 foot and you're just like, dude, it's four to five feet. You know, it's like, come on. So you're still in the water. You're active. You're an active surfer still, huh? I am. Um, I have to admit this winter, you know, I ended up getting COVID in November. It, it pretty much fatigued me and mentally kind of threw me off for the whole winter. Like I would, I'd show up at pipe and I just didn't have the energy and I'm looking at it and it's eight to 10, 12 Hawaii size. And I remember just going, you know what? I got about a million water shots. I don't need to go out of pipeline today. But then I found myself just kind of not being as active as I used to be. And I went, oh, my God, this is how you get old. So yeah. I'm trying to, like, mentally get myself motivated again. And, and you know, so I've been surfing a lot, um, trying to get back in the water, just get acclimated again. Yeah. What board did you take out to Jocko's last time you paddled out? <clears throat> it's funny you ask that because I have, I have a couple – what I call short boards, short boarders would laugh and call them long boards, but they're, they're regular boards, just bigger and thicker. And then I have like regular long board thrusters. Yeah. And I took thruster out the, it's probably like just shy of nine feet thinking it was about three feet and it was like six feet plus, like I said, and, but that board worked so good. It was yeah. the perfect board take out there so i really do like using those big boards and and then just big thick you know longer boards i'm not a short board guy anymore yeah are you dialed into a, um i'm obviously you're dialed into local shapers there but is there a particular shape uh shaper that you prefer to ride these days you know um i have a, a really nice Pizel. yeah but um I, I wish i could give somebody a shout out but i can't even remember I got them from wave riding vehicles. They're uh, friends yeah. of mine, uh, Les Shaw that owns the company. And I always swap him uh, photos for boards. So That's I mean, cool. it's a surfer, but I can't even remember who shaped them. Right. Well, go back with me real quick. So you moved to the North shore in the early seventies. Is that right? I got here in 1975. And were you a photographer then? No, um, I wasn't. I just came over to surf and I started doing little odd jobs, everything from clothes salesman to janitor to a uh, perishable food selector, which means you just sit in a freezing, uh, uh, in a freezer, an actual freezer and choose photo of perishable food products that, uh, certain stores have ordered. So these are all the weird little jobs I did. And then one day I just decided it was when I was 21 years old, I was like, I, I have to do something for a living. You know, what, what, what's my career going to be? And all I kept thinking about was, well, if I become a surf photographer, I'll get to keep surfing. So that was the whole goal behind picking up surf photography. And tell me about, I don't know, your first couple years of surf photography. I mean, the 70s was a, a wild time in the North Shore, right? Um, I know the Australians wild, started wild, coming wild. to shore there. And what kind of equipment were you using? And, and I bet you had some kooky moments when you were first figuring things out. Uh, yeah, I sure did. Um, the first water housing I got, <clears throat> excuse me, I got it in the mail. 
and I was so excited. I put it together and I rushed down to the beach and George Greeno was sitting on the beach and they were filming Big Wednesday. Oh. And I was so excited. I was like, hi, George, my name's Brian. And I just got this new water housing and, and it's this going to be my first time out. And he's like, well, that's great. Come on, let's jump in the water and go out. And I was like, how cool is this? And I jumped in the water and with, within about 10 seconds, I looked my housing had completely flooded. I, I had no O-ring on the, on the housing. It was just plexiglass to plexiglass, no seal. Water just rushed in there. And I ruined my first camera that quick. But, and back then it was $150 for a camera, which mm. that was a lot of money at the time, you know? Yeah. But that was my first big blunder. And, uh, and then I remember I couldn't even afford them a, a little, they had a thing, they weren't called motor drives. They're called power something, but basically it was a motor drive. Um, and I couldn't even afford one. So I'd have to sit there and click the button and then crank that little crank back. That's how I was shooting my land stuff. Mm. And I think at the time we were using 650 centuries and then a little bit later, thousand millimeters were, which were these big, huge beasts. Um, but everything weighed a lot back then, you know? Yeah. And I remember it was like, I think you paid a dollar a millimeter. So my 650 millimeter cost $650 and the thousand millimeter cost thousand dollars. Unlike wow. now where it's $10,000 for a 600 millimeter lens. Wow. Yeah. Photography is not cheap if you want to do it right. And I imagine, you know, doing it out in the water too, the stakes are even higher too with your equipment. Yeah, you've got to, you, you definitely have to <clears throat> really have faith in your water equipment and have good water housings and things like that. And <clears throat> excuse me, even the best ones, you know, they're going to leak. It's usually um, my own error. Whenever somebody's housing leaks, yeah. a lot of the time, if not most of the time, it's because of somehow you put something together wrong. There's sand on the O-rings. You know, sometimes the gears and stuff where, with, where you have the silicone and things like that, sometimes water will start getting in there. But you, no matter what, you've always got to keep track of that. Every time you go in the water, you got to put those things down, bring it back up, look for any fogging, look for any water in the housing. And believe me, I've drowned as many cameras as anybody. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. So you, when you drown uh, a camera, then obviously water has gotten into the housing. Have you ever lost a camera or lost the housing altogether? Or do you keep that on a leash or how does that work? Uh, you know, I, the only time I no, I take that back two different times. I've actually lost the camera once was in a pipeline and I made my own housing, my first housing. And I had a plexiglass handle on it that was just sealed with glue, you know, the, the handle to the actual housing, both yeah. plexiglass and sealed with glue. And I went under this huge wave at pipeline, barely got underneath it. The lip connected right where my hand was and just took the housing right off of my hand. <laughs> and it's funny, I came up, of course, panicking, holding a handle. And I looked around and saw it. And three separate times I swam to it right before I got it, another wave hit it. But I eventually got it back and got all the photos off of the roll, had a really great shot of Jerry Lopez. Uh. So I, I, I got it back, but it was scary as hell. The other time I was in Mexico and a wave just slammed me down to the bottom really hard and the thing came off of my wrist, even with a leash. And somehow I was with a crew of bodyboarders, Mike Stewart, 
you couldn't see a foot in front of you. Somehow, Mike went out in the water for about a half an hour and found the thing. Literally, you couldn't see a foot in front of you, and it was way down the beach from where I had lost it. So I don't, I have no idea how he pulled that off. But so yeah, both times I actually found them, but it can happen. Has the equipment gotten lighter? Like the housing? We know, I, I assume you shoot digitally, right? I do. Yeah. And um, there's definitely some brands that are lighter than others. You know, um, CMTs, which I've been using for the past three or four years, are very, very light. So that's great for that you know, situation, but every house, you know, it's good points and bad points. Um, but some stuff is lighter than it used to be. Some stuff's not because the cameras, the cameras we're using, like the one DX camera body, which is kind of the, the workhorse. That's actually a pretty heavy camera. Mm. So when you put a housing on it with a big, heavy 70 to 200, 2.8 lens, it gets, it gets very heavy. So, that's the other thing when you're swimming out in really big waves and you've got a leash on with a really heavy camera and, and a wave catches you or you get stuck inside in that thing. And maybe you let go of it with your hand. Now that thing's like a weapon because it's like strapped to your wrist and it's flying wildly underwater. So highly recommend helmets these days. I try to always wear one. I get lazy sometimes, which is silly. Um, basically you should always have a helmet on for that kind of thing. But, but I just got a new one. Oh God. What is it called? The five R mirrorless camera that Canon makes amazing 50 megapixels and they're very light. So that's good. But then the funny thing is now you have lenses. Like I have a 28 to, to 70 lens. Yeah. That's an F two, which means it just has this crazy, uh, wide aperture that does not typically come in zooms but that thing's a beast it's like super heavy so yeah camera bodies are getting lighter uh but lenses seem to be getting heavier at least if you're going to go for the best ones well that's interesting and i don't know a thing about surf photography i know i see you know i will see a photographer with that yellow housing you know um you know in the in the curl or or watching a, a surfer come down the line if a photographer is caught in a video or, or in a picture itself, but you're just out there, you put your, your fins on and, uh, and you swim out with that housing, right? That, that you don't have any flotation device other than that. Right. Yeah. Typically, it, you know, every spot is a little different. Some spots we shoot from jet skis, some sh- uh, spots we shoot from boats um, at pipeline. It's generally you're swimming, but I, I have shot a lot of stuff with um, boogie boards where you've got a little bit of flotation, a little bit of height to get over the chop in front of you, Mm. but they can also be pretty dangerous because, you know, the thing about swimming is a wave comes, you dive under if you're in a bad situation right? and usually go below the wave and come up the other side. But with a boogie board, that's pretty hard to do. So you've kind of got to choose the days that you want to use the boogie board. That's going to be safe enough that you're going to be able to get away from that breaking wave. But I'd say the majority of the time when I'm swimming, I'm just swimming. I don't have any sort of flotation device. Right. You must be a hell of a swimmer. You know, it's funny. Everybody says that or, wow, you must be able to hold your breath forever. And all I can say is that luckily I've been able to swim fast enough to stay alive and stay under long enough 
you know, to be able to get the shot. So, but I'm not like some, I mean, I have friends that can stand it for like two minutes. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like a literally like a 22nd guy, you know, yeah. but the good thing about like all the underwater stuff that I do is I'm just swimming under waves. So it's not like a marathon. It's just being able to kind of feel the energy and know how close you can get and still sit, stay safe. Do you understand what I'm saying? And yeah. the same thing with, and the same thing with shooting pipeline. And, but you know, I say that, like, I don't consider myself one of the greatest swimmers. Like there's my nephew, Brent Bielman is just an incredible swimmer. Mm. However, if you look at the average guy, I guess I'm a pretty good swimmer. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? I'm just sort of looking within our group. There's, there's guys that are just kind of all around photographers. And then there's guys that are specifically water guys. And right. I kind of, fall into the general category where I pretty much do it all. Well, many of the subjects, you know, I, I really enjoyed White Rhino and Brent Storm uh, was on this podcast a month or so ago and, and introduced me to you. A lot of those watermen that you're shooting, those subjects, I mean, those are world-class breath holders. So that's not necessarily a good criteria to measure yourself against. I bet compared to the average, yeah, obviously, exactly. you know, the timing of the ocean and how it works. Oh, I was going to say, I'm smart enough to know these days, which days to stay on land and which days to go in the water. <laughs> right, right. And you see plenty of Howleys probably still paddle out on days that um, are not safe to go out, but they just see this tropical, beautiful wave. And, and uh, it's a different story once you get out there. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, on the bigger days and the really, uh, you know, the powerful spots and days, you're pretty much just going to get the guys that know what they're doing. Occasionally you'll get somebody that wants to venture out there, but you know, we've got incredible watermen lifeguards over here and they're pretty much keeping their eye on, right. on anybody swimming out there. And if you're in trouble and don't make it out, you know, and you can't get back in, they're right there to grab you. And that'll yeah. be the last time they'll let you. I have a friend named Alex check. He runs a, a clothing line called the Roco. He's a really good guy. And he's a former pro bodyboarder. Um, and he was stoked I was going to talk to you. He, he definitely uh, knows all about you and also about your shots uh, in, the, in the bodyboarding community. He was telling me, you know, I was asking about all the breaks he surfed around the world and the like. And he says, when you're at Pipeline, I mean, you really have to work for it. It's a very regulated lineup. Um, and you could be out there for hours on end and maybe get a, you know, one, you know, one decent ride, uh, but you certainly have to earn it. Uh, it's pretty competitive out there and it's really self-policing, isn't it? That's exactly right. Um, the guys that are going to get all the best waves are the ones that are out there all the time. So it can be very crowded, but you're pretty much fighting for scraps uh, if you're not one of the regular guys. Right. So that is true. It's, it's a really competitive atmosphere out there and it used to be really aggro a lot of fights all kind of stuff like that but it seems to have kind of mellowed itself out and you know the guys that are deserving of the best waves usually get them there's still drop-ins there's still problems you know because sometimes you just don't see somebody behind you when you're taking off but that's the whole experience part of it and right. you you will get chased out of the water if you do something stupid or cause some sort of problem you know, or, or if they feel you're dangerous because of a wave you dropped in on or something to that effect. But yeah, it's pretty regulated. Why do you think it's less aggro now? Is it just a general cultural shift in surfing at large? You know, 
it's really strange. Like, it's funny. There's a book company over here that wants to do a, a book on the North shore. And they're really into how it was 10 years ago with the parties and all the fights and, you know, the crazy wild, wild West atmosphere, but it's kind of changed so much. Like a lot of the bad boys, you know, Andy Irons and Bruce Irons came from Kauai and a lot of guys came with them from Kauai. And that's back when everybody was sponsored. There was so much money floating around and if you even knew Andy and Bruce, you got sponsored. If you were a decent surfer, you know, it was just, it was all about a lot of money and, and all about people sort of ruling the show and running the whole place. And since the money dropped out, a lot of guys had to go out and get real jobs. And it's kind of started with a whole younger crowd again. And they're, and the only guys really surfing pipe on a regular basis are the handful of guys that have been doing it for years. All, a lot of the other guys have just gone off, gotten new jobs, and it, there's, it just doesn't seem like it's just a whole different thing. You know, it's like this place used to be surfers. Every house, a surfer lived in every house. And now you've just got all these mansions going up and people from the mainland coming over and just paying like way more than anybody's asking for the homes. And so in turn, what you have is a, you know, a, a neighborhood of surfers that is just disappearing. So it's kind of like, there's just, I don't know. It's a whole different feeling, you know? Yeah. Professionalism is kind of sunk, sunk in a little bit more. And now there's coaches and, you know, everybody's aspiring to be the next John, John Florence. And I I don't know, there's a lot of variables, but Mm. it's like the wild, wild West vibe is kind of disappearing. Mm. Yeah. You know, in Santa Cruz, you could uh, obviously each area has its own culture, but the same could be said for people like me. You know, I moved from out of town here to Santa Cruz and uh, bought a home here and Silicon Valley has had a huge influence, too. And it's definitely made the lineups one hell of a lot more crowded, but also a lot more vanilla too. kind of chased out yeah. the, uh, the surf dogs. But how about competitive? You know, we talked about the competition and surfing out there, you know, digging for waves and how competitive it is. What about with photographers? Um, do you find yourself bobbing around with a guy you've never seen before and, and maybe he's in your way or, or, or vice versa, or, you know, is it competitive with photography out there as well? Um, it is, it used to be, it used to be, um, like a, a pecking order, you know, it's like the best guys who've been there the longest, we all knew the right lenses to use because we shot similarly you know, back in the day, there was a sort of style that the magazines wanted. So we all kind of had the same lenses and we all sort of stayed back. And you didn't get some guy that was brand new swimming in front of everybody. And if you did, he got called out. Mm. Now it's kind of like there's a lot more variation in the way people shoot things nowadays. And now it's like there's these kids that show up with fisheye lenses and they all sort of huddle up into the front and they're not thinking about anybody else with longer lenses behind them or anything else. So it's kind of hard. Like the style I love to shoot is a little bit longer lens at pipeline. Um, I like to see the ceiling of the wave as well as the roof of the lip. So you can see how thick the lip is. I want to see the exploding whitewater behind the lip and behind the wave. I want to see the mountains in the background. Yeah. And a lot of these kids swim in and they have wide angle lenses and they just swim inside as the barrel throws over them. And they're incredible shots. 
but they all kind of start to look the same. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's that group of guys that just kind of huddle up in the front and there is, doesn't seem to be a much of a pecking order be, between anyone else besides that crew of guys in the front. Right. right. So it's a little, it's a little different now, you know, and the other thing too, is it's funny. It's like, once the magazines went away, a lot of the photographers that I'd been with for all these years stopped traveling over here from other countries. Right. And so you end up with a lineup that's kind of like a whole bunch of younger kids. It, uh, not, not super young, but, you know, between 18 and 25. That seems to be kind of the general age of most of the guys shooting out there now. And they are all kind of doing it for fun or for their Instagram. There's no magazines anymore. It's almost like... It's almost like it's become a high school kid's hobby. You know, like if you grew up in the mainland, you probably played ball in the park. And here they grab a housing and swim out and shoot pipeline, you know, and everybody's doing under, they're all doing their underwater shots and their Clark little wave shots. You know what I mean? That's kind of like the starting point right. for all these young kids. And then you got the old guy like me still floating around. It's so funny. They must just look at me like, what the hell are you still doing out here? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. You said you touched on something that does show uh, with your photography is that, and I, I watched, you know, even watching live action, like, you know, Mavericks, when, when, when they did last have it, I don't know, three or four years ago, I just know that my phone or my laptop screen is not doing this, obviously not doing this wave justice in terms of really illustrating how thick and how heavy uh, that water is. And many photos too, I think, um, don't necessarily uh, communicate how thick that lip is and how heavy it is. So what you says, re what you say resonates. And I was, I was looking at your website uh, just before we hopped on too. And your photos seem to capture the, the heaviness of that water. I think, I think a lot of it is the compression of longer lenses mm. compared to a wide angle lens, everything's stretched out. And with a wide angle lens, you get a whole bunch of, good photos. This is my personal opinion. When you're at a pipeline and you're shooting with a wide angle lens, you get a whole bunch of really good photos, but you've got to be one of those photographers that somehow is getting in there and getting some sort of a new sort of weird angle on it. And that takes an incredible swimmer to do that. So I would never, ever downplay like the greatest fisheye photographs. They're right. fantastic. But on a whole, you get a whole bunch of to me, just boring kind of, you know, a fisheye lens makes everything look the same. You can, if it's a four foot wave, it looks like a four foot wave. If it's a 10 foot wave, sometimes it still looks like a four foot wave. Totally. Unless you really have, you know, a knowledge of the right angle to really make that wave look crazy, which like I said, usually takes a really good swimmer who's willing to take crazy chances and get really strange angles as the lip throws over him. Right. Very dangerous. On the other hand, I kind of like the longer lens, just like we talked, because I just want to, I just want to show it as beautiful as I can and make it as big and powerful and everything else as, as it can. Um, with a longer lens and you go out on those smaller days, it looks very boring. So the thing about the longer lens, typically a pipeline is it better be a pretty damn big day to make it look good. Where with a fisheye shorter lens, you can go out on a smaller day and get something really unique. So each lens has its good and bad. You know what I mean? Right. I feel that way about GoPro footage too. I've really never been impressed with 
tube footage with the guy with the GoPro in his mouth or on his head. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're cool, but they, believe me, they all start looking the same, again, yeah. unless you've got somebody really good and really unique. Right, right. Here's a good one for you, a question I'm curious. As a professional photographer, you mentioned the decline in magazines, right? Like the only one, I still get Surfer's Journal, um, and it's a beautiful book, but, you know, Surfing Magazine, Surfer, Transworld, they're gone now. How, how do you make a living as a professional surf photographer? Um, well, when everything first shut down, I felt like that was it. I felt like it was the end of our industry. It was horrible. Mm. Um, cause I, you know, I was loving life. I was the top guy at Transworld. I was traveling seven, eight trips a year to all the greatest places on somebody's dime. So you can imagine I was pretty heartbroken when that whole thing fell yeah. apart. Uh, and then I was working for Volcom still for a few years. But now, you know, it's like they don't even need all the photos they needed. I mean, they just have filmers that follow the kids, the new surfers, and they have their little uh, edits that they put on the Instagram and on the Internet. And then the companies just take little still photos off of those. And that's what they use for ad on Instagrams. Hmm. So a guy like me, it was like, holy cow, you know, what what am I going to do here? So since then, what's happened for me is, first of all, I became photo editor of one of the only magazines left on the planet, which is Free Surf Magazine. Hmm. So that's really cool. It's, it's basically here in Hawaii, but it does go to California and some places on the mainland. Um, so that's kind of cool because I still get to see my stuff published in a magazine. And the other thing I do is uh, uh, I work for companies like this year. I worked for Billabong, O'Neill, Volcom. Vertra, you know, all these companies shooting their catalogs and their clothing campaigns and things like that. So the companies still need that stuff with still photography, but they just don't need general surf photos all through the year like they used to. And honestly, the biggest thing I'm making most of my money at these days are selling prints. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has been helped by uh, White Rhino. Because mm. that thing has been on Amazon. It's been playing all over the world. And I get uh, probably like three to four print orders a week from all over the world. So that's been really, really good. And um, so I'm, what, I'm actually right in the middle of putting together a brand new website. And I'm really going to start promoting, you know, my print sales and things like that and doing little video clip story behind the photos, just telling interesting stories about the actual photos. Yeah. Yeah. So you just kind of got to figure things out. And nowadays magazines, it's more like uh, just free advertising. You know, you're not making money from magazines anymore. You're just kind of getting exposure, you know, so you have to look at things differently now as far as all that goes. I think but it's it- kind of, it is heartbreaking getting these cameras that shoot 50 megapixels and I can blow the photos up the size of a wall and 99% of the time they're, they're being shown on a, a iPhone screen, you know, like one inch big or something like that. So it's kind of ironic how that all worked out. The movement toward analog products, like, you know, for a while I'd read books on just no eBooks, you know, on, on my, my Kindle or whatnot. But now I love having the paper in my hand and I just enjoy it so much more. Um, and I want to ask you about your vinyl collection, speaking of analog, but that falls in line with your prints too. 
I could be totally wrong, uh, but I think there is um, a renaissance of things like an actual print um, on your wall or listening to a piece of vinyl or reading an actual book in your hand, because I just think we're all sick of staring at screens, or at least I, I hope I hope we are. Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of surf books that came out really fast for a while there. And now it's been a long time because everybody's like, oh, print's dead, all that kind of thing. But I think because there's no magazines, I think the thing like books are going to become kind of special again. Mm. Um, the, yeah, looking at something on a screen, it just doesn't feel the same. It's just, you know, I, I was talking to another photographer friend of mine, Tom Survey, and we were discussing how we have so many iconic photos and how come there doesn't seem to be any iconic photos anymore. And, you know, there's obviously hundred times more photos with a hundred times better equipment with a, the talent level of technology and surfers has gone up. And, and I think what we figured out is that it used to be two or three magazines, surfer surfing trans world. That's where you saw all the surfing, everything that happened showed up in those magazines and each magazine would come out for a month. And you'd look at that thing up literally a thousand times until the next magazine came out. So right. those photos, those images burned in your brain and became iconic. Now, no matter how good, whatever you see on the internet is, you see it and it's gone the next day. And right. it's, it's just kind of crazy. And it's, it's kind of a shame, you know, that you're not getting to see these things, you know, in all their glory as a double page spread, but there are still a few magazines out there. It's just, it comes down to, you know, Surfer's Journal has a subscription. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what their distribution is like with yeah. subscriptions, but it's enough. They don't really need advertisers. And, right. you know, it's going to take things like that for a magazine to keep going because nobody wants to spend $2,500 on a one-page ad when they can get way more out of their money on the Internet, you know, advertising. No doubt. So that's kind of the biggest problem with all of that but anyway i don't know if i'm going around in circles with all this and i kind of lost my train of thought so i'll switch over to my record collection um, well, yeah i was gonna say know, i find that i find paralysis by analysis you know with apple music and i remember the days when i had you know in college i had tribe called quest i had um a wu-tang clan you know i had a, a couple nirvana records a cds and i was stuck with those you know in my car so you'd listen to the hell out of one album over and over and over again not unlike you know reading that uh you know that july edition of trans world surf until the next one comes out I, uh I, I love that about a vinyl too it forces you to appreciate the album in, in total is that what draws you to vinyl you know, the way it worked for me was when I was a young kid, I had a lot of vinyl and I got rid of it all when I came to Hawaii and started traveling. And then, and then, I don't know, 10 years ago or maybe 15 years ago, I, I wandered into a record shop and it was all of a sudden again, like, wow, you know, these are so cheap. I want to start collecting these again. And that's how it started for me. Then it boomed and all of a sudden records became super popular. And, um, and I had a big CD collection, which I got rid of because I thought, oh, CDs are like eight track tapes. Who cares? So I started collecting a bunch of vinyl. Then I hate to say it, but I went through a divorce and all kind of other stuff. And I was toting around all this, all these vinyl records and from, you know, like uh, storage unit to storage unit. And then I had some uh, stuff get stolen as far as camera equipment. And I was kind of forced to sell some of my uh, vinyl. So I did. 
Um, however, I, I kind of started realizing again, all the CD box sets and all the extra stuff that they had on them mm -hmm. that you couldn't get on vinyl as well as buying vinyl again. And all of a sudden, here I am rebuying vinyl again and everything else. But I just, I just love all, all the music, whether it's CD, vinyl. You know, now I don't have a preference. I, it depends on if I'm going to get more if I buy the vinyl or if I get more music on the CD. It just kind of depends. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know those women that go in those jewelry stores and they, and they start buying all this stuff online? I swear to God, I hate to say it, but that's how I am. I'm like... You know, I, I go to record stores and stuff, but I'll have too much coffee and I'll start looking on Amazon and I'll <laughs> next thing you know, I'm, I've spent 200 bucks on more vinyl and stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still in love with it as much as ever. And it is my only addiction, you know, yeah. don't do drugs, don't drink a lot. It's all about the music for me. Yeah. You could do a and lot. Then, I, I miss, I miss reading liner notes. I miss the smell of the paper and I love, I was a liner notes guy. So I, I assume you're touching yeah. on that in regard to the packaging of a CD or, or, or an LP. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just recently I bought, you know, a, a David Bowie box set, a Lou Reed box set, uh, Ian Hunter box set, uh, God, Tears for Fears box set. I mean, it's crazy. I'm, I'm a little bit mad when it comes to all that, but it's fun and it's healthy. And, you yeah. know, the other cool thing about it, and I can justify it, is that like I just got done um, selecting different categories for my new website. Uh, I've got this section that's all waves, another section that's all underwater. I've got a big wave section and each of them has a strange name. Like the big wave writing section is called monsters of rock. I mm. thought, you know what? I'm not going to do a website and say surfing. I'm going to come up with something creative. Cool. So as I pick my photos, I name every one of them after a song that I love or even just a song title that I think is super cool, even if it's not a song I love, you know, if it's not one of my favorite songs, but the title really works with the photograph. So that's kind of the cool thing about, you know, I can, I guess I could justify it with that, huh? It's just, I you know, got to buy the record, got to buy the music. Gotta yeah. Enter all of those purchases as expenses uh, for your, for your tax re returns then, because you're using it in a professional capacity. You can make a case. I wonder if I could write off all that stuff. I don't know. Well, I don't know. You make a good case. It's in inspiration for the titles of your photos. And by well, the way, it really is. Your wipeout section, uh, I really enjoy. And that moment of peace right before, you know, someone's about to have a two-wave hold down or they're launched over the lip in the air. I mean, I could just stare at some of those photos. You have one specifically where I don't know if the guy's leashless or is leash snapped. He has a rusty board and he's suspended in the air. Um, just about to um, <clears throat> fall to the depths of hell, whatever wave he's surfing. But the wipeout section, I strongly recommend for viewers to check out or listeners rather. <laughs> oh, that's cool. You know, it's sort of the new website. I'm kind of combining the wipeouts into the big wave section. So they're going to be kind of mixed together. Cool. Um, just kind of trying to do things a little bit differently, but yeah. I, and I realized how much photography I have. And you know, the funny thing is, I was saying this to somebody, it sounds a little egotistical, but I, I'm honestly questioning if it's true. I almost feel like I have one of the very, very best collection of surf photography of anyone on the planet, only because I've been probably doing it 
as long or longer than anybody on a regular basis. There's photographers that are still shooting surfing and they've been around as long or longer than me, but I'm on the front line still, you know, I'm not like, I'm not sitting back and watching the young kids do it. Now I'm right out there still getting what's going on, you know? And, and I started looking at my photography and it's like 40 years. I've never missed a winter in Hawaii. And I, I just realized like 40, 40 years of being in some of the most historical moments that have happened. And the, the, surfers the criteria of surfers that i've shot you know there's a lot of guys out there who've traveled more than i have but but they're not photos that you remember for the rest of your life like i've i've been there for all those huge towing days you know pretty much from the beginning and have most of those with the best surfers in the world yeah so and i've spent 40 years just shoot 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 where other guys have shot for 20 years and then they take what they've shot and they've marketed it and done something with it. And I haven't. And all of a sudden I'm waking up going, okay, 40 years of photography, I have to start really doing something with this. And that's kind of where I came up with the idea to start doing the story behind the photos where I start talking about all of them, you know, and, and giving the background to them and, and, uh, and, and that way kind of making them more interesting when people look at them, if they don't, recognize them right off the bat, which if you're a surfer, I think most of my photos you'll recognize from, like I said, the historic events that the photos came from. Um, but otherwise, I've got a lot of backstory and I'm a pretty good storyteller. So I think that falls right into, you know, a perfect kind of niche for me. I'm yeah. not the youngest anymore. I, I'm not the fastest swimmer anymore, but I bet you I got the best stories. Oh, hell yeah. And White Rhino, I... My intro, I've got to be honest, I, I, I haven't followed surf photography, you know, much in my life. I, I only started surfing about eight years ago, but your track record speaks for itself. And you, you seem like a pretty, uh, a guy with a lot of humility, which I appreciate. So that's not an egotistical thing to say at all. Um, if someone wanted to check out your prints and your work, they can go to brianbielman.com, uh, B-I-E-L-M-A-N-N.com. Is that your, your primary website, Brian? That that's it. That's it. Right. And it's still this website, which is a great website. I'm, in fact, I'm hoping that this new one is going to be better. I hope to hell it, I don't end up wishing I would have kept the old one, but I think I'm kind of bringing it, you know, up to date. I haven't done a new one for about 15 years, but it's still a really good one. And yeah, you can see there's a lot of categories and you can see a lot of incredible historical moments there that I was lucky enough to be there for. I never want to claim like I've done anything incredible. I've just been smart enough to be on the right trips and I guess smart enough to use the right lenses and know how to shoot the moment as it happens. You know, that's, I guess cool. that's the best way to put it. com as well as, you know, my Instagram too. A lot of people go to the Instagrams and, and figure out how to order prints, but yeah, the I've been selling, really big prints lately, big giant metal prints. And that's where the, the new cameras with the uh, large sensors and megapixel and all that, that's where that all works out really well because you can blow things up really, really big. I just uh, did a whole bunch of uh, prints for the Turtle Bay Hotel here on the North Shore. There's a whole wing hundred and something rooms that are all my photos and they're all the size of the wall. Oh, like wow. the photo is actually the wall. And I've got like a 
nine foot by something print in the lobby. So I'm really trying to take advantage of that situation and, and, you know, promote that to try to sell more prints because these days that's where the majority of my money's coming from. What, I mean, a turtle Bay, I only know it from, you know, Chaz Smith's paradise book. And also, um, Dude, don't they do the surfer? The surfer awards used to be there as well too. I, exactly. I haven't really yeah. I the North Shore, but what an authentic tribute to surf culture! I guess it's a testament to how o- o- Oahu honors its own um, to have those prints in each room in such a beautiful format. It was really cool how they decided to use local photographers for the different wings. There's three wings and there's three photographers, and we all have our own wing which was really cool. And that's when I kind of went to them and I just said, well, why don't you take it a step farther, you know, and, and promote local photography within your search shop that you're going to have in the lobby. And they thought that was a great idea. So I'm getting prints together as well as some goofy stuff like coffee cups and drinking water flasks and things like, you know, kind of goofy little things that I would have never thought about doing before, but they're all actually really cool. Not to mention I've watched guys. I helped start taking photos friends of mine who were much smarter marketing guys than me and they're killing it making a living selling the goofiest stuff you'd ever imagine i don't want to go that far but i don't mind making some cool coffee cups and and you know drinking water flasks i think that's kind of cool oh good on you cool so when i book a a room at turtle bay i need to book the brian book a room in the brian bielman wing in other words there you go ask for the brian bielman wing there you go brian i have two more questions What's the scariest moment you've had in surf as a photographer? You know, it's funny how you have these weird dreams that happen and then somebody, something happens during the day. Last night I woke up and for some, in the middle of the night, and for some reason I was thinking about this situation that happened to me, happened to me when I was a surfer. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, the scariest thing that's ever happened to me wasn't while I was shooting. It was while I was surfing. But it was when I first got here uh, to Hawaii. I'd been here two weeks. And there was a huge day out at a place called Laniakea. I paddled out. I, I caught a couple waves and barely made them. And I remember hearing some of my brother's friends go, wow, did you see Bielman's brother? He's killing it. Of course, my head got huge. And I ended up paddling right into the peak dropped into a giant wave, which I was not ready for. And I didn't go all the way to the bottom to make a big bottom turn. I just sort of turned halfway down the face and needless Mm -hmm. to say, lost my balance, flew backwards, bounced three times back into this giant tube. Mm -hmm. And then the thing took me over and over three different times to the point where I was almost unconscious and, and barely getting a breath coming up, you know, getting back under the next one just worked me. And I remember the the set stopped and I said, Oh my God, I got to get it out of the impact zone. And I swam over into the channel, not realizing because I was so stupid back then or new green. And I got sucked in the channel into a rip that was so huge. I couldn't tell where, which direction I was swimming anymore. And 20 minutes later, the current just stopped, the rip stopped. And I was like, literally like a mile out to sea and I swam as hard as I could to get back to the shore. And I remember getting to the shore and I went up to all my brother's friends and I was like, Oh my God, you guys, I I almost died. And they just looked at me and went, Oh man, that stuff happens all the time. And I was like, (laughs) Oh my God, that happens all the time. And to this day, 43, 44 years later, I've never had anything happen remotely that, 
that crazy again. And it was surfing and that I'll never forget that. Yeah. Photography wise, rather, I've definitely had some crazy stuff, you know, almost drowning and then being out on boats on those giant days and at like Tahiti, I've been out there on boats before I went out one day during this huge swell with the craziest driver who always pulls up the closest tight tightest. And of course you get incredible photos, but it's, scary as hell surfers would be on the boat with us and they'd be like i'm getting off this boat i'm not staying on this boat and i'm like dude it's like this the whole day like terrifying and this one particular day our motor died 30 different times on us 30 different times we'd be going up the wave face and the, the motor would conk out and he'd sit there trying to start it start it start it and it would just barely start just in time for us to get over the top of the wave. And it got to the point where I just said, you know what, I'm not going to worry about it. And I would just keep shooting the whole time. And somehow we kept making it over every wave, but it was, it's crazy. The stuff that happens on huge waves, huge days. So you'd think being in a boat is safe. Believe me, anything can happen. It's, it's always scary as hell. I touched on that a little bit in the white rhino movie when I explained how I couldn't get out on the big day. And I finally got out and then realized like, what the hell am I doing out here? This is the scariest thing I've ever encountered. Well, those two are some harrowing stories about being scared out and surf. Thanks for sharing those. I got one more. When was the last year? You're obvious. I don't know. You'd call yourself a waterman, I would assume. And you're pretty competent in the ocean, but surfing has a way of humbling you regardless at least I assume so. It sure does for me. What was the last time you kooked it, Brian, where you just felt like, mother effer, I've been doing this way too long to pearl the nose of my board or get in someone's way or, or anything embarrassing like that in the water? Well, you know what? It's kind of funny you say that because um, surfing, I'd have to say just going out surfing lately, I, the whole winter, I was hardly in the water after COVID and being fatigued. Right. And then I ended up shooting a lot. And once you get in that sort of not surfing as much mode or being in the water, it kind of, you realize like, Oh my God, it's been like four or five months and I've hardly surfed. I've been shooting and working, but haven't been in the water. And I started surfing again. And Oh my God, when you get older, the last thing you want to do is stop surfing for a a, a time because I just felt like I was learning all over again. And I was just slow getting up and, you know, doing some really stupid mistakes and going over the falls and everything else. And I have to admit, I felt like the biggest kook. And I was like, okay, that's the last time I'm going to, I'm going to go for a period of time where I can actually start surfing bad again. You know, it's like, you just got to be out there all the time and keep doing it or you're going to get old. And I felt, I felt that happening for the first time in my life. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. As far as kooking it, my surfing lately, I've felt like a total kook. So (laughs) <laughs> it's just a matter of being out there more and getting back into it again. Right on. Boy, you over-delivered on this interview, man. That was really a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'd love to catch up with you again down the road sometime. But thank you for sharing so many stories. I have so many more questions, and I know you have so many more interesting things to talk about. So thank you, Brian. Yeah, no worries. I, I, I love uh, doing it. It was fun. Cool. Yeah, White Rhino. I would uh, uh, really implore listeners to check out White Rhino, uh, White Rhino if they're unfamiliar with Brian's work. But chances are you've already seen it before if you've seen any surf uh, marketing material. And uh, BrianBieleman.com. Brian, do you have anything to say to the world that's listening before I depart? 
Well, you know what? I would like to say something quick about White Rhino. I just want to thank all the people that were involved because the whole project, I don't know if Brent touched on any of it, but, you know, we just met on the beach and we started out with a much smaller sort of idea of what we wanted to do. And Brent was the one that said, dude, we've got a lot more going on here than a couple of Instagram posts. And he basically decided he wanted to really do something with this. And me with my connections, you know, we got all the surfers in, we got all the photographers and videographers to send their photographs. Uh, I'm mostly video footage for the movie. And that was my part in it. You know, I did a lot of the interviews cause I'm friends with everybody but we gave all this big, massive stuff to Brent Storm, and he took off for a year and came back with this incredible movie. And then our friend Randy Olson, who's uh, sort of a genius with communication and, you know, teaches all about that, storylines, things like that. He sort of looked at the video and gave his opinions, and we switched a few things around to make it a real, you know, movie with a beginning and a middle and an end and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I just want to sort of, I guess, thank all the video guys for helping out and Randy and Brent for, you know, really making this thing special, going the extra mile with it. And for a wedding photographer, he made a hell of a damn good surf movie. And it's, it's actually kind of feels like it's getting sort of a, a cult sort of feeling to it. You know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't, it just keeps going and going. It's like growing. This movie's growing as time goes on and more and more people are seeing it. And I think it's because it was just a really, it, it really was just a, a, what do you call it? A project of love. What's the word? Yeah. What's the term? Passion project. It was a passion project because we had zero financing. And I'll be honest, we made probably zero money, but mm -hmm. it was the most fun thing I ever did. And, you know, it kind of, got me a little bit more out there in the world. So I, I thank Brent for that from the bottom of my heart. It was edited so well too. It didn't, you know, most surf movies at, at some point, I feel like it drags on just a little bit too long. You cut 20 minutes out of it, 13 minutes out of it. But I, I'm typically bored to tears with surf movies. And yeah. his was, this was actually fun to watch and interesting and not too long. That's the biggest thing. Like you said, I agree. It left me wanting just a little bit more, which is the sign of a good piece of art. Right, right. Yeah. So, so that's it. I guess I just wanted to really, you know, thank those guys, thank everybody that was involved and, you know, tell people go out there and watch it. It's a really fun movie. Even if you're not a surfer, I think you'll appreciate it. Brian, thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the best and um, I hope we can stay in touch. Thank you. You take care. Have a great day. Check out Brian's work, brianbieleman.com. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Bielman, B-I-E-L-M-A-N-N.com. You can see all his recent work, his portfolio. Uh, you can buy prints from his website. You can check out the White Rhino print set. We touched on that documentary and I, I would implore you to check out that documentary as well. I also implore you to give me a donation, okay? MidlifeSurferPodcast.com, or rather, MidlifeSurfer.com. MidlifeSurferPodcast.com. I should, probably should buy that URL, too. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, MidlifeSurfer.com if you want to donate. If you don't want to donate, that's fine, too. I'm just glad you're here. I'll catch you next time. Catch you next time. Peace. And I'm on the Bitch. In New York, I'm in the wrong. What? Hiding in my sock. Lucy's every rock. 
running from the cop, uh, shooting at the ox. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.